uh, we have this section of Scripture that kind of transitions. It's the end of the section in Romans where Paul talks about sanctification. Now remember, Paul's writing to a church in Rome. And the church uh, was basically a group of families gathering together in people's homes. They didn't have a particular church building. Uh, they were one of the early churches. We're not talking about the established, what we would think of when we think of a Roman church. We think of perhaps a Roman Catholic, where it's these big, beautiful churches with stained glass windows. These are, these are Christians that are just meeting in people's homes. And there's nothing the world would consider special about it. But the glory is revealed when God takes his spirit and plants it in earthen vessels. He takes one of the most precious gifts we've ever been given, the gift of the Holy Spirit, and he puts it in clay pots. He doesn't put it in this adorned, beautiful piece of pottery. He puts it in this old clay pot that nobody would suspect. And that's how he builds the kingdom. And so as he's writing to this Roman church, he's what we call the book of Romans. He, it was really just a letter to the Romans. And so he's introduced himself. He's explained that he is a partaker in the gospel of Christ, that he's a sinner saved by grace. He spends about two and a half chapters talking about what the wrath of God will be revealed against, all unrighteousness. And then he tells us that justification, being made right in the sight of God, can only be had by faith. By faith in the Son of God, being the payment, the atonement, the one that brings us at one with God. The blood that was shed on the cross, the spotless Lamb of God, presented for us. A gift given to us by God. And no gift can be had unless it's received and opened and enjoyed. And so God offers this gift of salvation to anyone who would believe and receive it. But many people will not receive it because they're too happy enjoying the, the passing pleasure of sin. They won't forsake it. And so Paul He's written this and he's giving to us the basic tenets of the faith. And then for anyone who's been saved, knowing they're justified by faith, the natural question that came up in Romans chapter 6 is, if I've been saved by grace, and if God's glory is presented and shown, and how much he's forgiven me, then why don't I just continue on in sin so that grace can continue to multiply in my life and be evident to the people that are around me? He says, no, perish the thought. Don't even think about that that way because if, if God's freed you from the bondage and the control of sin, why would you go back? Why would you continue to let sin reign or control your mortal body? So, okay, so it's not okay to just let it rip and continue on sinning. God desires better for me. So how do I go about that? So then he talks in Romans chapter seven about the, the law and how the law was never meant to save because if we're supposed to get away from sinful behaviors and appetites, then I guess the best way we can do that is by going to the law and fulfilling all the commandments one by one, living a sinless life. But if we could live a, sinful, a sinless life on our own, then Jesus didn't need to die. He died in vain. And that's what we find out when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane and he's down there and he's sweating great drops of blood and he's saying, Lord, if there's any other way that salvation can be procured for my people, then let it be done. But not your will be, not my will be done, but yours. If there's any way that this cup of, of wrath can be 
passed on and I don't have to take it for the sins of the world, then present it. But not my will be done, but yours. That's kind of a loose paraphrase. But what Jesus showed us there is that because God went ahead and went through and and put his son to death on the cross through the hands of evil men, we see that there is no other way. Because if there was another way, Jesus prayed for it and it didn't come. So, because that's the case, we we can't fulfill the law on our own. He already did it. So if he's fulfilled the law, and if I've been saved by grace, and I can't continue on in sin so that grace may abound, God's got a better plan for me, and the law that spotlighted my heart and showed me that I was sinful can't save me, then what can? And Paul explained this work of sanctification in the end of chapter 7. He said, you know, I find then that there's a law, verse 21, chapter 7, I find then a law that evil is present within me, the one who wills to do good. He says, I've been saved. God's given me the desire to do good. But he says, I'm finding within myself that evil is present within me. Well, how can that be? If the Holy Spirit resides in me and God's renewing me day by day, then why is there still this this desire to sin, this propensity to go back to the, the wallow, to go back to the pig pen? Why is that there? And so Paul says, verse 22, he says, I delight in the law of God according to the inward man, but I see another law that's in my members, talking about his body, that warring against the law of my mind, bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. He says, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? We know the works of sin bring forth death. They bring forth shame, hurt, pain. And we know that the gift of God is salvation that brings life. And he's given us his spirit that desires, if you have a desire to serve the Lord, if you have a desire to to do good in the sight of God, to please him in what you do, then that's a sign that you receive the Holy Spirit. That desire is there. But many times, because we're new in the Lord, our bodies, our, our members, he talks about, our hands, our feet, our mind, Everything about us still has this inclination to go back to where we came from, to sin. And many of us have walked in sin way longer than we've walked in the newness of the Lord. And so Paul says, I know that there's a war going on inside of you because I've experienced it. If you desire to please the Lord in any way, it's a battle. It's not easy. But what he says there is the fact that there's a battle going on should show you that you're the Lord's. And it's good. It's a sign that that God's renewing you and you're not there yet. And we will not be there. We will not be in perfection until we see him face to face and we will be just as he is. Pure, holy, just, and good. But until we leave this life and pass on to the next, there will be a battle. And so in Romans chapter 8, He begins by saying something, knowing that everyone that's reading this is thinking about the battle he's just described. This inward man desiring to do good and this outward exterior desiring to war against that inward desire to do good, that temptation to sin. He says, so then, in the end of chapter 7, with the mind I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh I serve the law of sin. He says, but... Now, in many of your translations, it probably doesn't say this in chapter 8, verse 1, but. 
the contrast. But in the original text, the idea was but. In contrast, even though these things are all true and this battle's going on inside of you and outside of you, he says, in light of that, there is therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus who do not walk according to the flesh, but walk according to the Spirit. He's described this battle that's going on, and he knows that Christians, people that know the Lord, are going to try to do good, and they're going to feel defeated all the time, because there are going to be times when they fail. Just like your child. If any of you have had children or watched children try to learn how to walk, you watch them stand up for the first time, and you're just so excited. And they take that first step. And maybe they get halfway through and they fall. But they're trying. How many parents do you know watch those first steps and they get aggravated at the kid because they failed at it? I don't know anybody. Unless they're just weird. But when my child stood up for the first time and fell, I was excited that she tried. And the Lord is that same way with us. He doesn't look down on us and see us trying to serve and to please him and go, they failed. He looks down on us. He says, they tried. They're starting to grow. They're, they're, they're trying out their new legs. They're taking their first steps. And they failed, but they tried. And he's pleased with us. He looks down on us. He sees someone for the first time willing to step out and try. And he's just He's, he's excited. He's excited like a parent who sees their kid trying to walk. Because when your child starts to try to walk, what does it tell you? Your child's healthy. That's good. And your child wants to grow up. When your kids want to grow up, it's exciting. When you've got to force them to grow up, it's kind of it's a bummer sometimes. You're like, get out of the nest. What are you doing? But the Lord, when he sees us take those first steps... He's just excited to see us take the steps because it means we're alive in Christ. And so he tells us there, he says, there's therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. He says right before that, with the mind I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. He's talking about that inner turmoil. That, and, and so when we take those first steps, verse two says this, it says, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the spirit. Remember in chapter 7, and even before that, in some of the previous chapters, he says, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified. By doing the law, no flesh will be made just as if it never sinned. Jesus Christ and his blood applied to our lives cleanses us of all unrighteousness and makes us positionally in God's sight as if we never committed one sin. Sin separates us from God. Sin condemns us. It separates us from his love. But when we are in Christ, we're under his protection. We're covered in his blood. We're under his blessing. We're in Christ. He's pleased with us. He looks down on you and I and he sees Jesus Christ. 
And when he looked down on his son, when he walked on this earth, what did he say? This is my son in whom I am well pleased. And so he looks down on us and that's what he sees. So he says there, what the law could not do and that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own son. Well, in the last chapter, he basically told us, he said, the law was never meant to deliver us from sin. It was never meant to deliver us from bondage. The law was meant to reveal to us that we had sin in our lives. And when we know, it's like an x-ray. The x-ray machine does not show, it doesn't fix your illness. It doesn't mend your bones, your brokenness. All it does is show that it's there. When you get an x-ray or a CAT scan or a, um, what are the, uh, MRI, all that does is it shows what's inside. But those machines can't fix it. They can only show the problems. And if you've ever had an MRI or a CAT scan or a, an x-ray and you, you see it and you see the bad news, it, it gives you bad news. It doesn't give you good news unless it shows that you've got a clean bill of health. But when it reveals that brokenness, it's not so that you'll feel like, oh man, I'm not going to be able to walk the rest of my life. It's so that the doctors know what they need to do. And so what the law, the law does is it real, reveals in us the sins that we struggle with. So then God can show us, he already knows, but then we know the sins he wants to work on in our lives. And so at the same time, positionally, what Jesus does is he fulfills the righteous requirement of the law. When he was nailed to the cross, all of our sin was put on Jesus and that sin was judged on the cross. All the consequences that the law gave to those who had sinned in certain ways, that death that it brought, the death, the righteous requirement of the law was death. If you sinned in the Old Testament, some sins, they would take you outside the camp and they would stone you to death because you had sinned. That death that was required because of your sin, Jesus took it. He paid it all. We no longer have debt if we're in Christ. Verse 5. For those who live according to the flesh, they set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. I, I, I read that and I go, okay, so there's a difference between the flesh and the Spirit. So, how do I walk according to the Spirit instead of the flesh? How do I work that out practically? Because it makes sense to me. Okay, I need to walk in the Spirit, but what does that look like? So turn with me to Colossians chapter 3, because Paul hits on this same idea when he's writing to the church in Colossae. And when he writes to these different churches that we see in the New Testament, he deals with a lot of the same issues at every church. But what's cool is that sometimes he gets a little more specific. And he, he kind of goes over the main idea in Romans, but in Colossians chapter 3, he gets more specific. So we'll go there for our, our lesson there. Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. He says to them, If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. He says, set your mind on things above and not on things of the earth. For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is our life, 
or the source from which we receive our life, when he appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. He says, therefore, in light of this fact, he says, you were raised with Christ, so seek those things that are above where Christ is. Where is Christ? He says it. He says, he's sitting at the right hand of the Father. He's in heaven. He's sitting on his throne. He's completely in control. He's the King of kings. He's the Lord of lords. I read that in Psalms this morning. He says, we are dead. We've died. Our old self has been put to death, but we've been raised in the newness of Christ. He says, therefore, verse five, put to death your members. Remember, we were just talking about the members that try to rule over us. He says, put those to death. Put to death your members, which are on the earth. And then he talks about our members. These are our earthly desires. He says, fornication. That's any sort of sex outside of marriage or any sort of, you know, Jesus talked about how it wasn't really just the act, but even thinking on those things. He says, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. He says, put to death those things, coveting someone else's stuff, having evil desires against people, uh, some sort of passion that's outside of the will of God. Um, let me see here. Romans, it's Romans, and then it's First and Second Corinthians, and then it's, I think, Galatians, Ephesians, and then Colossians. So then he says there, because of these things, the things he just listed in verse 5, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of, the, of disobedience, in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. So if we're in Christ, we're no longer to walk in those things. We're no longer to practice those things. Verse 8, but now you yourselves are to put off all these things. So recognize that he's stripping down the Christian. He's not going to leave us naked though, because Christ covers us. He's going to say, put off these things and to put on these things. He's not going to leave us bare. I think sometimes people think, well, if I go to church, if I want to follow Jesus, that means that I'm no longer going to be me. He's going to say, no, I want you to be more you that you were ever intended to be than you ever were in those things. He says there, um, but now, verse 8, you yourselves are to put off all these. Anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. He says, do not lie to one another since you have put off the old man with his deeds. You've died to yourself and you have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all and in all. He's saying any person who comes to Christ, he's a new creation. He says that in Corinthians as well. He says, we are new creations in Christ. Well, how many people do you know that profess to be Christians and yet they're the same thing they've always been? There's no evidence of any change that's ever taken place. And I know many. I was one for years. And the Lord had to chastise me and finally reveal to me, hey, you claim to be this, but you're no different than you once were. I want to do a new thing 
and you're clinging to the old. He says, put off all these things. But then in verse 12, he says, therefore, as the elect or as the chosen of God, recognize that if you are in Christ, he chose you. There should be some significance to that. You should identify and go, hey, you know, I, I like the idea of being chosen. If anybody's in here that's ever played kickball in middle school or in elementary school, when you get picked last, you're not that excited. But when the Lord picks you, the creator of heaven and earth, he chose you. He wants you on his team. He wants to make you his son. That's encouraging. He says, as the chosen of God, holy and beloved, he says, here's the things you should put on. These are the character attributes of God. Put on tender mercies, kindness, humility. That's one that's needed today, right? Humbleness, meekness. Meekness is not weakness, but it's power under control. The idea is a a horse with all the strength that a horse has, but guided by a little bridle that someone just wields with their hand. Or a ship, James says, with a little rudder, like the Titanic. Imagine the Titanic, except one that doesn't sink. You know, like a battle, you know, what's the, the big fortress that they land planes on? The, um, it's a ship. Aircraft carrier. Imagine that big, huge ship. And yet they steer it with these little rudders that you can't even see unless you look down under the surface. That's the idea of meekness. That ship moves at just the turning of the rudder. You know, at just the the changing of the direction of the motor. You know, the the horse, all that power and that strength and just a little strap of leather. It feels that on the right side of its neck and it goes to the left or wherever it goes. It's been a while. But the idea of meekness is not so much that we just let people walk all over us. The idea of meekness is that we have all this strength, all the riches of Christ, and yet we're, we're guided by His eye. You know, just a little bit of a tap from Him and we move in a different direction. He says, put on these things, mer- tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, and mine says long-suffering, but that means patience. Bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you were called in one body, and be thankful. That's something lacking today, being thankful. And then he says this, and I see this as the key verse in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 16. He says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. We're talking about the process of sanctification. And he talks about the, the fruit of our lives, the actions, the words. But let me ask you, if, if God were to do inventory on your life, would you be able to say that all the things that I do and say and am, all the things that I am, are, can I say that they're done in the name of the Lord Jesus? Me neither. I, I struggle with that. I if I were to really take inventory and think about the, the way that I'm spending my life, I, I would have to confess that I don't do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. I do them in the name of Mike Meany. 
But the reality is, is he says that Mike Nee died. I'm in Christ now. I'm a new creation. I'm his. I, I'm driving around town with his magnetic sign on my on my car. You know, we were talking about that at men's Bible study the other night. You know, it, Cody Harbison and his dad has Harbison Construction, right? Or uh, tree trimming. Yeah. And he's driving around town. So Cody, when he gets in his dad's truck and he drives around town, he drives a little different than when he's in his truck. Because he represents not only his dad, but his dad's business. He's got a reputation. Now he's not just doing it for the reputation, but he wants to honor his dad. And so we also, we don't have a magnetic sign on our car necessarily, but we're Christ. And if we call upon his name, if we're his, then what we do reflects upon him. It either brings glory and magnifies his name and his holiness, or it's a blemish. Now the Lord's not ashamed of that. But if we are seeking to put off the old man and to put on the new, then we're going to bring glory to his name. But there are times where I'm ashamed to say that I'm not bringing glory to his name because I'm continuing in the old man. And so when Paul's here in Romans 8 talking about, hey, God's pleased that you're trying, that's, that's encouraging, that's comforting. We're his. And then he says there in verse 6 of Romans chapter 8, he says, to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. How many of you guys in here, don't have to raise your hand, struggle with having a peaceful life? I'm not talking about nothing going wrong, but being able to experience the peace of God in your life. There are days where I go the entire day and I'm like, where's my peace at? Why, why am I not experiencing the peace that God's told me I'm, I've inherited from Him? He promises it to me. Well, many times it's because I'm not abiding in Him. I'm anxious. I'm, I'm restless. I'm going here and there and I'm distracted by all these things. And He's just saying, just come be with me. I'm your source of peace. Trust me. Don't trust your circumstances. He says, to be carnally minded is death. It's just anxiety and worry. But to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind, verse 7, is enmity with God, meaning war against God. For it is not subject to the law of God, nor can indeed, nor indeed can it be. So then, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. If you're in the flesh, if you're constantly living in the state from which you are called out of, then you're at war against God and you won't have any peace and you can't please God. Now, how can we please God? Well, let's look at Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. I'm going to turn there real quick and if you want to, you can join me there. But Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6 says this. He says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, in other words, must believe that he exists, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. I like that because I want to please God. It's in me to want to please God. But how do I do that? Well, it, it's done by faith. Our salvation is done by faith. Pleasing God is done by faith. Our, the completion of our faith is done by faith. And God gives us the faith to do it. So it's all Him and yet He rewards us for doing it. I don't get that. But I love it. So in Hebrews chapter 11 verse 6 it says, Without faith it's impossible to believe God. So if you 
are living a life that's contrary to faith. You're going based on your, your senses. You're walking by sight. You're walking by your feelings. You're never going to please God. But if you can walk by faith, trusting that what he's told you in his word is what's going to complete you and continue to teach you, that's when you'll be pleasing to God. Jesus said that I came to do the will of my Father who sent me. And everything that he did was in accordance with what God had told him to do. So verse 9. He says, he said all that to come to this point in verse 9 and tell us a positional truth about every Christian believer. He's told us all the practical stuff, but he wants to tell us the positional stuff, the promises. Verse 9. He says, but you are not in the flesh, but you are in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. And if you are in Christ as a gift, he gives to you the Holy Spirit, who seals you until the day of redemption. The Holy Spirit is the guarantee for your passage through this life. It's like the guarantee that they would, in the olden days, they would send a package from one place to another. And sometimes it would have to go through specific provinces within their empire. And they would put this stamp of approval, this stamp of promised passage on a package. And it would be the king's seal. Number one, it would seal the box. It would never be opened. Or the container. They might not have had a cardboard back then. But it would also secure passage and promise that it would make through. With that king's seal, it would be able to cross all the borders on the way to its destination. So the Lord has sealed us with his Holy Spirit Marking number one, that we're his, the spirit of adoption. We're his sons and daughters. But also marking that we're going to be brought through this life unscathed. We won't be a damaged package when we get there. He's going to secure our, our delivery. We're insured, if that makes any sense. If anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he is not his. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. What He's saying there is you've died to sin, and if the Spirit dwells in you who raised Christ from the dead, not only will He raise you in newness of life when you die, Death will not be final. You will go to be with the Lord. You'll be translated to a new place. I heard a pastor say one time, when I die, I didn't really die. I just moved. I, I moved to a different place. It's really just, you know, the final move. I never have to move again. Jesus said, I've, I've built the house. I've prepared a place for you. He says, verse 11, but if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. Salvation is not just to get us to heaven. It's to deliver us through this life and to give us victory over sin and the battles that we struggle with. I love that because I think many people understand I'm going to heaven, but they feel like they're defeated until then. But this life is a life that he's going to give us victory over sin. So verse 12, he says, Therefore, brethren, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh, which is what we once did. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. 
For you do not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you receive the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. And that word Abba is what a little Hebrew boy would say to his daddy. You know, when Lucy comes up to me, she says, Dada. You know, she's not saying it like, Dad, can I? She's saying, Daddy, I love you. Embrace me. Or sometimes, I need something to drink or whatever. She comes boldly into my arms and asks for things. And the Lord, he's adopted us. We're not just his kids, but we're his sons. We're his, he's pleased with us. And so he gives us that that openness. Verse 16 says, the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit, spirit that we are children of God. And if we're children, then we're heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. So he kind of ends on a note where it's like, well, why would you say that? I'm an heir of Christ or I'm an heir of God. I'm his child, his inheritance is going to pass on to me. Whatever Christ gets, I get, which is amazing to me because he paid it all and I just followed him. I didn't really do anything except trust him. But he says there, we're adopted. And since we're adopted, we get to the same inheritance that Jesus does. When his earthly kingdom comes down, and I believe there will be a millennial reign where he is the king of kings and lord of lords, practically, we're going to get to sit on thrones with him. We're going to be part of ruling his kingdom. We're king's kids. I've never been anything close to that. If anything, I'm just a a greeter at the door. You know, I'm a servant. But the Lord's going to make us his kids. And and we positionally are like that. But I confess to you, many times I don't live like I'm a king's kid, like I'm dignitary, like I'm a representative or even an ambassador of Christ. I, I wallow with the pigs and then I'm like, Lord, you love me, right? And he does for some reason. But he says, we're heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. Jesus said, in this life, you will experience tribulation, but be of good cheer. I've already overcome the world. And so uh, this life where we're battling against this fleshly nature, many people think, well, you know, all these wars and all these tribulations I'm experiencing, they all come from without, and some of them do. But what James says in chapter four, this will be my last reference, I promise. In chapter four, he says, where do wars and fights or wars and strife come from among you? Where do they come from? He says, do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? You lust and you do not have, you murder and you covet and cannot obtain. You fight and you war, yet you do not have because you don't ask. The Lord wants to give you victory over your sinful behaviors, over your sinful appetites. And he wants to, more than anything, he wants to see you try to trust him, try to walk. But many of us never get off of the floor. We're crawling around. And the Lord's saying, I've given you the power to walk. Walk with me. Trust me, fail a couple times. I'd rather you fail trying than fail to ever try. And so let me ask you this morning, as he's called you to walk with him, are you not trying because you think that if you try, you might fail? Or are you one of those that doesn't have the spirit and you're not his 
And you need to become His for the first time. Because the reality is, you can try to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. You can try to do it on your own. But it won't lead to anything but strife and lack of peace and hurt and bitterness. You'll want to do what pleases God, but you won't have the power to do it. And the Lord's offered to you the power to overcome, the power to live for Him. And I tell you what, I've never experienced any more joy than when I'm living to please God. Because when I'm trying to please me or my own desires, my own appetites, the only thing I end up is worn out and stressed out and bummed out and exhausted. But when I'm serving the Lord, He always gives me everything that I need to serve Him. I don't end up worn out. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a horrible God, little g. I, I can't, I'm not worthy of being served, but God, He gives us all we need to serve and to please Him. And so, remember that. And remember that there's no condemnation. He just wants to see us try. And when you try, you're going to be surprised at how much victory He gives you. And then uh, He'll bless all those around you. So let's close. Lord, thank You. Thank You for anointing us with Your Spirit. Thank you for giving us the oil of gladness. Thank you for being the king of peace. Thank you for giving us peace when we'll walk in your spirit rather than trying to serve ourselves. Lord, we're going to serve somebody. We're going to serve something. Lord, help us to find our rest as we serve you. Father, cleanse our lives. Remove the impurities. Help us to learn to trust you. And as we do, Lord, give us joy peace, gladness. And uh, Lord, teach us to put on tender mercies, to put on the garment of Christ. And uh, Lord, as we do that, I pray that you would continue to give us victory over the battle against sin, over the battle against death. Lord, uh, teach us and make us look like you. Make us Christ-like. Make us Christians, Lord. Save us from ourselves. In Jesus' name.